0: Fellas, Army, Uh, and T-Head. All right. First of all, let's get these formalities out of the way. This roll call is just like any other roll call. You need to hit the like button, okay? I wanted you to hit that subscribe button. And you know what? I gotta tell you something. I have to admit, this show is really starting to grow. And I think you're gonna have to agree with me, Jason. This show is kind of like your waistline. It just kind of keeps growing on you, man. All right, listen here, man. Hey, tell hit that five-star review button too. Okay, yeah, hit that five-star review button too, man. All right, listen here. This this goes out to each and every one of you that's purchased this Fearless merch. You've gone over to theblaze.com. Hey, man, it seems like the hottest thing in demand now are these Fearless camo condoms. We're here Fearless, we're proud of this, and we're trying to keep up with the demand. And I have to tell you that we're doing our best to keep up with the camosexuals in our community, and we're trying to deliver these to you as soon as possible. (laughs) Listen here, remember when I told y'all last week that Big Bird was in the news for getting the vaccine? Well now, guess what? Mr. T's in the news, and he got his vaccine yesterday, and he immediately tweeted out, I pity the pain. Now, I thought it was great because Dan Rather followed that up and said, I'd rather get my Vax advice from Mr. T. He said, instead of Fox News, because I pity the fool to get the advice from Fox News. Okay. Little Nas X was announced as the man of the year by GQ magazine. Now, I could be wrong, Jay, but I know good damn well I got more votes than this dude just based on the fact of my manhood alone. Now back in the day, GQ used to stand for Gentleman Quarterly magazine, right? Now I think it should just stand for godless queers. You know who we got to blame for this, man? We have no one to blame for this but ourselves, America. Let's not forget, we're the generation that made megastars, made millionaires, made icons out of prints Michael Jackson. Let's not forget, let's not forget, Michael Jackson made that transition before it was even fashionable. OK, he went from a little black boy to an old white woman. Now, remember that Nicki Minaj. We talk about her performance at the awards. But let's not forget about Madonna. Remember back in the day, her rolling around with the wedding gown on, talking about like a virgin handing out more more, more STDs than a trollop. Okay, man, look, I'm not gonna lie, I came up liking music like George Michaels, boy George, and we asked ourselves, how did we get here? It's our fault. We was programmed. It's kind of like when we saw Debo Samuels last night looking like Flavor Flav. Huh? And let me tell you something, I didn't like it, but that man made himself the new face of the NFL overnight. And that's what's happening to our country. Little Nas X, the face of GQ magazine, man of the year. Just like Caitlyn Jenner was voted the woman of the year. This is the new face of America. And this is why we as members of the fearless army have got to accept accountability to our shortcomings, to our families, to our countries. And we need to stand up in the name of righteousness for this day forward and make a commitment to ourselves, to God, and our country. And we will stand up and say that we will exist in a state of man glorious. And we will try to remember that we are protected by the red, the white, and the blue. Sissy! Welcome to Fearless, featuring Jason Whitlock. (laughs) I'm your Thrill Sergeant Uncle Jimmy, and we got a great show for you today. First of all, we got the professor, Delano Squash. Let me tell y'all something, fearless. I pray for Jason's health every day, because if that man ever gets sick like I did, I promise you, everybody here at the studio is gonna be working for Delano. He's gonna be our new new boss, okay? We also gonna go to our overseas affiliate, Steve Kim. He's gonna be dropping that bilingual overseas knowledge. And also, I told you all before that I've told you that she's the first lady of the fearless army. Her name is Shamika Michelle. And I need to be the first one to apologize for some of the tasteless comments that I've made regarding Shamika. And I wanna tell you something, all of those jokes were honestly tasteless. We've never met. I ain't never tasted nothing. I'm gonna be honest with you. Jason says that Shamika is like his little sister, but I'm gonna be honest with you. She more like a play cousin to me. Every time I see her, I give her the respect that she's due. I come to attention. (laughs) Therefore, I say to you, Fearless Army, ATTENTION! DJ, theme music, Whitlock, Firestarter. Let's get it started, baby.
1: Happy Tuesday, great job, Uncle Jimmy. Uh, You know what? I'm not gonna wait. Uncle Jimmy's already previewed the show. There's nothing to do but, well, you could talk about how good I look. (laughs) God, I look really good. All right, but let's get to this fire starter. Uh, The slippery slope of televised racial justice started with us, when I'm talking about black people, wrapping our arms around O.J. Simpson during a double murder trial 27 years ago. It did not matter to Simpson supporters that the all-time great running back eschewed any semblance of racial loyalty or that Simpson likely committed the murders. Duty called, we answered. Black people clung to the hem of Simpson's garment, as if miracles would be derived from the agitation of white people incensed by the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. The slippery slope we boarded in 1994 has hit rock bottom in the Cal Rittenhouse double murder trial. In our never-ending zeal to agitate white people, we have wrapped our arms around Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber, two deceased white criminals. Rosenbaum was a convicted pedophile. A decade ago, a grand jury in Arizona indicted him on 11 counts of child molestation involving five boys ranging in age from nine to 11. The charges included anal rape. He copped a plea and was convicted of two of the 11 counts. He suffered bipolar disorder He attempted suicide. He was released from a mental institution hours before confronting Rittenhouse, threatening to kill Rittenhouse, and trying to take Rittenhouse's AR-15 rifle. Huber was a serial domestic abuser. He pled guilty to strangulation, suffocation, and false imprisonment. He had been charged with disorderly conduct and use of a dangerous weapon. In the moments before Rittenhouse shot him, Huber clubbed Rittenhouse with a skateboard. Rosenbaum and Huber are the new O.J. Simpson. They are the stars of White is the New Black, a docu-series airing on CNN, MSNBC, and across all social media platforms, illustrating the utter lunacy of a racial justice agenda built around irritating conservative white people. That's the point of racial justice. Irritating white people. We, black people, are so confused, so misled, so lacking in strategy, leadership, integrity, and substance that we've reduced black progress to trolling white people. We replaced Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with black Twitter. How does convicting Rittenhouse of murder for defending himself against the attack of psychotic criminals advance the cause of black people? I'm gonna wait. Someone answer that question for me. How does convicting Rittenhouse advance the cause of black people? As far as I can tell, it doesn't. It's no different from the acquittal of O.J. Simpson. A handful of black comedians made money cracking OJ jokes. Johnny Cochran burnished his reputation as America's best trial lawyer. And black people got to giggle amongst themselves about how irate their white coworkers were that OJ walked. But nothing changed for the betterment of black people. The biggest winners were the cable news channels. OJ launched TV careers and networks. Fox News and MSNBC, he launched in the aftermath of the Simpson trial. Greta Van Susteren, Geraldo Rivera, Dan Abrams, David Gregory, Nancy Grace, Harvey Levin, Jeffrey Tubin, Elliot Spitzer, all rode the trial of the century to fame and fortune. OJ benefited the white people who were willing to go on TV and lie about what was happening inside the courtroom. The OJ trial is the only trial I watched start to finish. Cochran and his dream team of attorneys destroyed the prosecution from Bordeaux to the closing arguments. The TV experts pretended that prosecutors Marsha Clark and Chris Darden were holding their own. The same thing is playing out in the Rittenhouse trial. Corporate media, they're pretending the prosecution is proving Rittenhouse is guilty of murder and black people are foolishly anticipating a moment of frustrating white people's satisfaction. Black people, we're Charlie Brown kicking a football that white people keep pulling at the last second. The frustration of white people does not improve the lives of black people. If we want to be taken seriously, we need a far more tangible goal than frustrating white people. This current goal is embarrassing and counterproductive. It makes black people look weak, illogical, and immoral. The current goal forces us to turn OJ Simpson, George Floyd, Jacob Blake, Joseph Rosenbaum, and Anthony Huber into martyrs and heroes. Rachel Maddow, AKA Joy Reid, shouted Rosenbaum's name on TV the other night like she was referring to Medgar Edwards. A Black Lives Matter clown from Portland, Oregon, Greg McKelvey, tweeted yesterday that employers should give their black employees a day or two off from work after the Rittenhouse verdict. Regardless of the verdict, McKelvey says, it's going to be hard for us to work and it isn't fair for our employers to expect us to. The deaths of a white pedophile and a white domestic abuser have shaken black people to the point, that we need time off work to recover? McKelvey is insane. He suffers racial dysphoria. He's half black and half white, born to a black dad and a white mom. He's married to a white woman. His children look white, look more white than Mike Pence in The Dead of Winter. McKelvey is the worst kind of half white liberal. He absolutely loves white fruit, but his blue check public persona is based on pretending to hate the white tree that produced it. McKelvey's just another power-obsessed liberal using racial justice to seize power and fame. It's all a consequence of the slippery slope. Yesterday, during closing arguments, Assistant District Attorney Thomas Binger put an exclamation point on the absurdity of the racial justice being sought in the Rittenhouse trial. Binger rationalized the violent and bizarre behavior of Rosenbaum on the night of the shooting including excusing Rosenbaum's use of the N-word. He just happens to stumble into it. So what does he do that night? Oh,
2: let me tell you all the awful things Joseph Rosenbaum did. He tipped over a porta potty that had no one in it. He swung a chain. He lit a metal garbage dumpster on fire. Oh, and there's this empty wooden flatbed trailer that they pulled out in the middle of the road and they tipped it over to stop some bear cats and they lit it on fire. Oh, and he said some bad words. He said the N-word.
1: Are you kidding me? A pedophile who dropped the N-word is the newest racial justice martyr. Never thought I'd miss the days when O.J. Simpson was a hero. All right, Uh, let's roll out uh, to Washington DC and bring in the smartest man on the show, uh, Delano Squires. Delano has written a column about Rittenhouse that we will address as well, but we'll start, uh, Delano, with my contention that the affinity for or the, the desire to see Rittenhouse convicted by a segment of the black population is completely based on we think there's some value in agitating white conservatives. That's our end game and goal, and we think somehow that advances us. Am I right?
3: Absolutely, Jason, and we've talked about this before in terms of the difference between um, being pro-black, so to speak, and being anti-white. And as you said, there's a, a large contingent of particularly the black left confuses those two things. And they think that everything that um, offends white people or upsets or irritates white people is for the betterment of black people. But as you said in your monologue, there's so many instances in which that's clearly not true. right? So again, whether it's Joy Reid or other people in the media who keep trying to pull black folks into this and make this about race, uh, I think people are starting to wake up and realize that You know, this only has to do with black folks to the extent that any case around self-defense is something that all citizens should pay attention to because all of us could be in a similar situation at some point, but this is not a a racial issue. And and in many respects, the, the media, as I said, tries to pull black people into every pet issue that Democrats have, whether that's on abortion, on LGBT issues, on climate change, they, they try to make and turn all of those things into quote unquote black issues. So in many respects, honestly, they, they are just like Joseph Rosenbaum. They can't keep their hands off of us and are always trying to, to grab us and pull us in, into their clutches. And I think it's time that, that people say enough. You know, we're, we're not going along with it anymore. It's,
1: it's so obvious to us how we're being used and how our race is being used for Democrats to seize power and to define every issue all the way down to the LGBT issues. Everything is framed as a racial issue. It's so easy for us to see it. Are are, are the, the Joy Reeds of the world, the Michael Eric Dyson's, uh, all the way down to just the man, because I'm t- my friends. I, I'm t- I, I, I will not call any of their names, but they're some of my best friends in life. They can't see it. They're invested in Rittenhouse's conviction and think somehow this helps us.
3: What what is so blinding them? I think it really comes down to one word, and that's ideology. Um, I think people have been captured by a particular way of seeing and viewing the world, of understanding the world and everything that happens in it. And I talked about this last week in my column about the Selma syndrome. um, Race has become, and a particular view of race, has become a defining characteristic of the black left. And that view is that you know, Robert E. Lee is always just one step from outside the door, and that black people have to—we have to come together and fight back against the scourge of white supremacy. And if 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 we, you know, fall asleep at, at the wheel, if we don't stay on guard, then we can be dragged back to the days of Jim Crow, or or or, or even worse, the days of slavery. So, when they talk about Rittenhouse, my, my assumption is that they think that you know, this is a referendum on the American legal system because, you know, he is benefiting from um, the presumption of innocence, you know, at least on on sort of in the conservative media world, that a similarly situated black 17-year-old would not benefit from. And because they think that a 17-year-old black kid in the same situation would have the book thrown at him, they see that as an an example of how white supremacy still reigns supreme um, in this country. And again, it's... At a certain point, um, they they just have to keep stretching further and further and further, um, and and I, I sort of describe these types of instances as as Gumby moments, where you know for viewers who are old enough, you remember the the character Gumby who could like stretch as far as he needed to, or Mister Fantastic is an, is another you know Marvel character, where at a certain point it's just like, the, you guys are reaching, and it, it gets embarrassing after a while because. Even people who are sympathetic to, you know, claims of, of systemic racism start to ask themselves, uh, why, why, would a, why would a white employer need to give black folks days off if a particular trial involving one white dude shooting three other white dudes doesn't go the way that the mainstream or corporate media wants it to? So I, I think, as I said, the the quest for power um, is so blinding that it causes people to not see what's right in front of them. Now the question I have is whether people like Joy Reid, Michael Eric Dyson and, and their peers actually believe the things that they say or whether they are saying them just for the sake of of ratings and, and likes and, and retweets. Um, I'm not sure about that. And this is one of the reasons that I, I love being on this show. I love working with you is because I find that conservatives, generally speaking, actually do believe the things that they say, right? Um, the left likes to, to, to sort of stereotype conservatives, particularly black conservatives, as oh, people who are doing things to make money and who are grifting. But I, I sleep well at night knowing that there isn't a single word that I say on this show or that I, that I put to, to paper that I don't actually believe. And I'm not sure if people on on the left can say the same thing.
1: Delano, I did not prepare you for this next question. I I, I almost wrote about it in my column, but I was like, man, I just don't know if I can unpack this thought in this column, and maybe I can't unpack it here either. But I'm going to ask the question regardless, because it came across my mind as I was writing this column, and then listening to you talk about this thirst for power, and particularly political power, and how it blinds us. At one point I had a sentence in my column or thought about leading my column and monologue with that Barack Obama's presidency is the worst thing that's happened to black people in 60, 70 years. That his, the fallout and the aftermath of his presidency has set off, has made politics our religion, and has made us throw out virtually everything we believe in pursuit of political power. And it makes me think, and, and I, I really don't have a super negative opinion of Barack Obama, but I am developing a super negative opinion of the impact of Barack Obama and what it did to black people. Am I crazy for thinking that a lot of this and a lot of where we've gone mentally and seeing our d- identity as a Democrat and throwing out all of our religious beliefs and values can be directly traced to Barack Obama's presidency?
3: I mean, that's a really interesting thought. Um, I, at first blush, I wouldn't necessarily say his presidency itself was has, has been the worst thing that, that's happened to black America. I think in many respects, obviously, it was a historical moment. It was a moment that many people Um, both of an older generation and even younger folks thought would never happen because of how racist the country is. So I think it was a moment for a lot of people to um, acknowledge what progress we've made in previous generations to the point where um, not only did uh, Obama get a higher percentage of white voters than John Kerry did in the previous election, he also got a higher percentage of um, Republican voters and conservative voters. So I, I think there's something to be said for what the symbolism of his election meant. But I will agree with you in this respect. I think that his presidency revealed what was already there, which is that fusion of black racial identity and democratic sort of, um, you know party affiliation. And the reason I, I say that, and actually I would what I would do, I would actually, to, to take your idea a little bit further, I would combine his election with the election of President Trump. And I think what you see, particularly on the left and, and the black left, is you, you you see sort of that full swing of the pendulum from the high that a lot of black folks felt after Obama was elected in 08. I remember getting on the train the next morning and and. People had the newspapers, and there was sort of the silent head nods, and, and, and in that time, as a, as, a, as a country, and particularly for black folk, we felt up. And then when Trump came in in 2016, we felt down. And I think when you make politics your religion, you can go from um, the feelings of euphoria, when you see that Christ figure, that savior, sort of ascend to the mountaintop on high, to complete deflation when, from your perspective, you see the Antichrist start to rise. Um, and I think that's, that's part of what both of those elections revealed about our country and, and particularly on, on the left is that when politics replace actual religion, when it becomes sort of the singular organizing principle of people's lives, right? When they determine whether they will be friends with you based on what you think about a certain set of issues, um, you 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 are prone to those types of swings, and that's why you see. Again, you can you can have um, Obama syndrome, where you think that because you know America elect, elected its first black president, that everything is going to be okay. That your friend who never wanted to work before is all of a sudden going to get a job because Obama in the White House. To you know, stage five Trump derangement syndrome, where you you blame orange man bad for everything that you think is going on in the country. And, and I think that's that's really how I would frame it is, it's to your point, we have so associated our personal identities with our politics um, that we are sort of vulnerable to the swings that happen from one election cycle to the next.
1: Obama wrote in on the slogan of hope and change and, and hope, in 2008 is really, I did have a feeling of hope and euphoria. I didn't vote, but I just knew what his election meant to my mother. I remember what it meant to my father. And, and, and I can remember calling my mother that night, and I was like, I told you he was going to win, and, and you know she thought it would never happen and thought it could never happen in her lifetime or even my lifetime. And so I just don't understand how we go from that level of hope to this level of cynicism about mm. this country, that some guy with the name Barack Obama, uh, who is at least half black, certainly looks black, married to a black woman, could be elected to the White House, a- and and you know four years or four years after 2008 or, or what, 2016, eight years after 2008, we have such a cynical view and like oh that. Uh, America is just it's irredeemably racist. Mm. This this swing is just baffling to me that that the impact or the legacy of his election in my view is going to be two things, gay marriage and racial mm. cynicism. Mm. That that's what I think. That's the change that he made in America. He set off some hope and the change he set off was racial cynicism and gay marriage.
3: Yeah, it's it really is interesting to see, you know, that that swing, you know, over the course of of eight years. It almost feels like an entirely different country. But as I said, I think part of it is, you know, when you, you know, like, you know, like in um in one of the biblical stories, it talks about, I think in a parable, Jesus talks about the danger of building your house on a on a on a sort of sandy foundation. Right. Like his point was to build on solid rock and, and he was describing himself. But when you build your identity on a history of discrimination and oppression, in some respects, freedom becomes more becomes a lot scarier than bondage. Because at least when you're in bondage, you know where you're supposed to go and you know who's supposed to be telling you where to go at all times. But when you're free, you have the added burden of self-direction. And I think what what you have, what we've seen in our culture, and this is not just among black folk, but on, on the left in general, is that I guess, Jason, in some respects, I would almost compare it to, to some of the things that Colin Kaepernick was saying in his series, right? Where he opens the series by, by drawing a parallel between the NFL combine and slavery. And if you take a step back and ask yourself, well, isn't this the same guy who's been saying he's been training every day for the last five years and he wants to get back into the league? And, and in many respects, that is a microcosm of where we are right now in our political discourse. There are people who are so terrified of freedom that they pine for the days of slavery. And I think that that's part of what we're seeing work, work itself. It, it felt like it was working itself out of the culture in 08, but it certainly has hardened and entrenched itself even further since, since the election of, of Trump.
1: You've said a mouthful, and you've provoked me to say something that I'll probably regret later today. But it, it's just what comes to my mind. It is what you? We've been basically institutionalized. It's it's mm. like the person that has spent so much time in prison, and we've been put in a mental prison uh, by the Democratic Party, and we don't want you know there are some people I'm tell you, they want to go back to prison because that's how they know how to operate within and so we have this freedom and this autonomy and this you know Martin Luther King and that generation made a bunch of sacrifices for our freedom to get us out of jail we can do what we want and and what we're describing both of us in my view is like we don't want the freedom. We'd like mm-hmm. it better if, if our rights were limited and, and we, we knew how to operate when racism controlled our level of success and, and, and controlled where we could go, what we could do, who we could date, what schools we could go to. And, and that seems like we're in a fight to go back to that institutional mm-hmm. uh, penal system Mm-hmm. And, and that it scares me and it, it undermines my hope because w- one of the things I, I've tried to tell young people and anybody I come in contact with, that's why I'm so transparent about, like man, I was not the smartest high school student. I certainly wasn't the smartest uh, college student. What I was able to do was show up. And then t- what, when I got into the workforce, I just showed up every day. I'd get there a little early before everyone else, or, or I certainly wouldn't be remotely late. And that's 90% of the battle. If you just show up, and, and, and you just be somewhat respectful and, and mm. professional, you're going to have success. And, and literally, I, I tell young people all the time, it's like, if you could just avoid having kids before age 25, mm. and get a high school diploma, it's pretty standard procedure. You're gonna be successful. You're not gonna live in poverty in America. But I don't know, I guess I'm just distraught and disappointed. I wanna transition, because you wrote a great column today about Rittenhouse, and you used the Rittenhouse trial to make a point that I totally agree with, that we're looking at a battle, what the Rittenhouse trial represents is the battle between people that want to defend America, versus people who want to destroy America, explain.
3: Sure, I mean, it, it really, you know, obviously there's, there's the, the micro issue, which is Kyle Rittenhouse is, is on trial for killing two people and shooting a third, right? So the jury will d- decide whether he's guilty or, or not guilty based on the evidence that they hear, so th- that will take care of itself. But when you look at the reaction from the media, and particularly, sort of the corporate advocacy media on on the left, the Times, the CNN, MSNBC. What you see emerging is just another instance of the battle that you that you um, alluded to and that I write about, which is that battle between defenders and destroyers. And one of the things that that really um, sort of piqued my interest was what was the fact that every time I, I would hear, you know, personalities, anchors, hosts on MSNBC or CNN talk about Rittenhouse. They always started at the point of him being a 17-year-old kid traveling across state lines because apparently now borders are important when when it's between two states, but not when it's between two countries. But they would talk about (laughs) him, you know, traveling across state lines with an AR-15, which is again false, the gun, he didn't travel with the gun. But they, they talk about how reckless it was and how bad a decision it was but they never talk about what brought him there. They don't talk about the, the nights of, of rioting and looting and burning in Kenosha, or if you want to broaden it out, in other cities across the country. Um, they don't even talk about you know, s- some of the underlying facts of the case as it relates to Jacob Blake, which is how the, the, the riots in Kenosha got kicked off, all right, and, and why he was actually, um, why the police showed up to arrest him. They don't talk about any of those things. They don't talk about the fact that the one person who survived the the shooting, um, being shot by Kyle Rittenhouse, himself had a firearm that he was pointing at Rittenhouse at the time that Rittenhouse returned fire. So it's almost as if they give a pass to people who want to destroy property, who want to burn, who want to loot, who want to assault people, and they only focus on the guy who's defending um, either people's businesses, um, people's property, or even his life. And I find that to be a perfect sort of distillation of where we are as a country right now. The, the left always attacks the defenders and always provides excuses for the destroyers. And that's why they embrace the language of dismantling, um, destroying, tearing down, decolonizing, deconstructing. It's always about destruction. They, they never talk about what they want to build what they plan to sustain or how they they plan to defend it. It's always tear it down. Um, And I I want to to write about that because I think you see that not just in this case, and I I want to be clear that I'm not just talking about, you know, defending cities from from marauders or, or rioters or looters, regardless of their race or color. You see this in the criticism that the left heaped on parents who showed up at school boards to defend their children from being indoctrinated into racial essentialism and, and, and gender ideology, right? The, the, the personalities never asked, well, what is it that kids are actually learning? They never want to open up the books. They just want to attack the parents who felt the need to defend their children. Um, and I mentioned in the column, you know, this past week I, I saw a clip with Michael Steele, who again is former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, um, a Republican, and I'm assuming a self-professed conservative you know, yucking it up with Joy Reid as they mock parents who, you know, were upset that their kids are being um, you know, introduced to, to sexually explicit uh, materials in school. And they were laughing and saying, oh, well, if you think that's bad, check out what the kids are doing behind uh, the bleachers at school or what they have on their phone. And, and it was just such a, a, a weird impulse, I guess, f- me seeing one, a man and a father do this, a professed Catholic do this, a professed conservative do this, to mock people who have genuine concerns about the types of materials that their children are being exposed to. So uh, you see time after time that when the left has the choice between siding with the destroyers, the defund the police or the abolish the police people, the dismantle the nuclear family people, the um, abortion through all nine months people, or with the defenders, Right? The people who defend life, who defend the importance of the family, who defend safety for all citizens, regardless of race, ethnicity or income, they, they always side with, with the former. So I really want to bring you know, uh, some attention to that. And, and then the, the second big point is that in the absence of rightful authority, right, what you get is whether you call it vigilantism or citizens stepping up to the plate. When the police don't do their job, when the family doesn't do its job, when rightful authorities in whatever sphere of sovereignty, I'm thinking back to what Chocolate Knox was talking about yesterday, whatever sphere of sovereignty is in place, when when that authority does not do its job, someone else is always gonna be forced to step up. And whether that's Bernard Goetz in 1984 on the subways in New York City, Kyle Rittenhouse in 2020, or some other yet to be named citizen, who feels the need and feels compelled to defend themselves um, from the encroachment of, a, of an enemy, that's, that's what you're going to get. And that's where we are right now as a country.
1: Delano, you also made a great point in the piece that I think is worth expounding on about this whole thing, protectors versus defenders, is really just a proxy for a war on men. And the mm. traditional role that men play—we are supposed to be protectors—and that seems to be being outlawed across America.
3: Absolutely, and I'm, thank you for bringing that up because I, I think that that really is what, what's going on here, right? Um, we've gone from the, the the sort of the mainstream position that sexism is bad to that masculinity itself is bad. So anything that is associated with masculinity, including um, defending the, the weak and the vulnerable and protecting your family, your community, your children, your wife, um, even your country, that all of those things are inherently bad. Um, and the left would love for men to abandon their rightful position, their rightful post, because they know that in order to encroach on those things that men are sort of assigned and created to protect, they know that the defenses have to come down. They know that the city, the city gate has to open up and someone has to welcome them in. And I mentioned in the piece, um, that's why the left, the left m- would much rather celebrate a man who takes his kid to drag queen story hour than a man who questions what type of society would allow drag queen story hour. And that's why, this is months back, going back months, Jason, when I, when I was so critical of Michael Strahan, that, that's, that's really what I was getting at. And I get he has a job, he has bills to pay and all that, but he welcomed in a 10 year old drag kid, quote unquote, and called him inspiring. And I was frustrated and I expressed myself in the way I did because I'm saying to myself, the, and, and they don't just want any man. They want the biggest, strongest, and particularly if he's black, black men they can find to cosign all of their uh, degeneracy and dysfunction because they know if they can get that face in that body with that sort of resume to, to, to agree with them, that it will protect them from criticism and encourage other men to say, oh, Michael Strahan's a manly guy. He thinks it's normal for 10 year olds to dress up in, in the most sort of caricatured versions of, of womanhood. Maybe it's not that bad. And 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 that's why I was so critical of, of him because he he plays a role in this society. People like him, right? Play a role in this society, and all men play a role in this society. And the left would love nothing more but to see men continue to abandon their posts. And and that's part of the reason that I think, and I think you've made this point point in previous days, that Rittenhouse, again, is a symbol of something. And I've said this before on the show. If if a a band of marauders show up at a house and they bang on the door and the person that comes to the door is a teenage girl, or in this case, a teenage boy, they know that the man of the house is either asleep or has abandoned his, his position. And the left would love nothing more than to have that be sort of the the characteristic of American society because they, they understand that you know, if men don't fulfill their roles, then the women and children that they're responsible for are all going to be a lot more vulnerable.
1: This, again, the, the point about the it's a proxy for an attack on men, I can connect it to almost every one of these conversations we've had as it relates to police involved shootings and all the right. Ro- mm-hmm. I, I one of the things that frustrated me the most about the entire Breonna Taylor discussion is there Mm. was no discussion of like, she was there with her man, there's someone knocking at the door. Mm -hmm. They say, Breonna Taylor and the man say that they think it's intruders. They don't believe it's the police. I'm sitting there going, well, if that's the case, why did this man let Breonna Taylor out of the bedroom? He's supposed to go handle that with her Safe in safety back in the bedroom. It can never be discussed because as it relates to and you could just reduce it to black men, but it just as it relates to all men, we don't even place those expectations on Hmm. men that you're supposed to be the primary protectors that women and children go first. And that's like, somebody, I can remember when someone was, we had a conversation about what happened in Afghanistan a few months ago, and and uh, I, we brought the guest on that pointed out like, man, look at, this is the opposite of what happened at the Titanic. During the mm-hmm. Titanic, men allowed, uh, like a really super high percentage of the women and children survived the Titanic because men stayed behind and died. And then mm-hmm. he, he showed like, in Afghanistan, men were on, it was like 98% men on those planes trying to escape, and women are being left, women and children are being left behind. We've turned the whole thing upside down, and, and no one even wants to talk about it other than, and I'm again, I agree with you, that's why I'm glad we have this show, and I'm glad I get to engage with guys like you that agree with me, it's like, there's a job and a responsibility that was given to us by the most high. Yes. And, 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 and that's where I, I'm saying, like as black people and we're black women are our leaders right now, we're abandoning all the responsibilities, all the values, the beliefs that were instilled in us in the church through faith. We're abandoning it all out of cowardice and I guess
3: a lust for political power. And, and, I, and I think to add to that is just, this goes back to our previous conversation, right? When when you are trained in a particular way and your mind is bathed in a particular worldview since you were young, it's hard to shake yourself out of that. And again, we've talked about it here, the the, the matriarchy is the default and standard in black America and has been for the better part of 60 years. And that that's why, even in small ways culturally, I tend to pick up on this and, and some things, even if I don't write about them or speak about them, I notice them sometimes, yeah, they do bother me. So for instance, when I, when I watch Black Panther and I see that the king of Wakanda is protected by an all-female force, and I know that they're sort of pulling on, on history. I can't remember what tribe it was, but but that actually was... You know, there was a a tribe way back in antiquity where where that was the case. But I'm saying to myself, why is it, whether it's in Black Panther and Wakanda, whether it's Black Lives Matter, that as a community, we, we always have black women on the front lines. And that is a complete inversion of the natural order. And that's part of the reason why so many black women, particularly, are so conflicted because some of them have bought into this notion of, of the matriarchy, right? It's, it's, not who's going, it's not whether someone will lead, it's who. So in one respect, they want to be powerful and I can do all these things and have my education and my career and I'm not knocking any of those things, right? But what ends up happening is they have a desire to lead and then complain when they feel unprotected. We can't have both. Because the person who is out front, the person who is leading, takes on as part of what should rightfully be his responsibility, the fact that they are the ones who are gonna take the arrows and the slings. But what what's happened is that, um, and in many respects I, I would lay this at the feet of sort of the feminist movement, uh, again, over the past 60 years, they've convinced women, and particularly, as I'm saying right now, black women, that you can get all of of the benefits that come from being a quote-unquote leader and have to pay none of the costs. It's like asking for the sun because you want the light and not the heat. And, and that's why so many things across American society and particularly in our community um, seem so upside down is because men have been taught to be passive, right, to, to step back, to sit down, to shut up, to not question. To, to not assert themselves. And the, the women are, are taught to be independent, to be strong, to be courageous. And then we wonder why th- there's so much co- confusion and tension. Um, and I th- as I said, I, I think, again, we've seen those changes occur over, again, decades now. And, and it's not that these women have a problem with male leadership. In many respects, they just have a problem with black male re- leadership. When I've talked about people like Brittany Cooper, the, the self-professed radical feminist professor, um, when she's criticizing black men, I mean, she's throwing some heavy haymakers. But when a white guy comes on to say, yeah, Brittany, I agree with you. You know, the black man is really quite inferior to the white woman. Her response is, hey, don't say that. That's not helpful to this conversation. It's the same way they, they feel about Joe Biden. Right. Uncle Joe. They're in tears when he gets elected. But when him and his, his uh, proxies on the Democratic Party attack black men, none of them will, will say anything um, in our defense. So I, I think in many respects, as a community and as a broader American culture, we, we have to figure out what is it that we expect men to do. And that starts extremely young. So, so when you see a little boy and he's playing with a girl, even if the girls his age or older, and you know they're playing with a house or, or a car, and he says, no, no, I'll drive, that's my job. Don't stop him. He's, he's, he's working out something that's innate within him, which is that desire to protect. And our sort of cultural um, dismissal of that desire is one of the reasons that we have so many problems here today. And that's why I said men like Michael Steele know better like Michael Strahan, or should know better. These men should know better. And, and that's why I'm, I'm, in many respects, I've completely abandoned any hope that the left is gonna turn this around in, in short order. And I'm trying to talk to a different set of men to say, nah, this is part of your job. This is, what, 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 what other reason to have you around? Jason is like, when you're a teenager, right? You see a mom coming in from the grocery store. She's, she, she leaves the car with boxes and bags any, any teenage boy that's worth this salt will rush out and say, no mom, I got this. But we've completely inverted that. And we put all the weight on women and then wonder why they seem so frustrated and exasperated. It's part of it is we have to pull our weight. And part of it is that we have to identify the people who are fighting against us, whether they be black or white, liberal or conservative, and, and tell them no. This is part of what it means to be a man. You have to want and take on responsibility. You have to be willing to fight and defend your family. If you will not die on this hill, then what hill will you die on? It can't be the hill to get Joe Biden reelected. That that can't be the highest hill of, of, of humanity. There has to be something deep within you that says, no, it is part of my job to protect. And to your point about Breonna Taylor, and, and again, I, I know we're not trying, this, this is not an attempt to, to sort of uh, disparage the dead, but what we're saying is, at some point a man has to say, honey, you stay here. It's not your fight. I'm the first line of defense. And I pray to God that if I'm ever in that situation, that's exactly what I would say to my wife. I got this. And, and I think this is the part that's probably most controversial and, and most important, Jason, is that she would listen to me and say, you got this, this is your job, I'm gonna let you handle it. But we don't have that right now. We have everybody wanting to fight over what they see as as the power position, and that's one of the reasons our is in such disorder.
1: Uh, Delano, great job. Uh, We'll talk to you later in the week. Thank you, Jason. All right, you guys, uh, go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscribe, hit the notifications. Uh, hit the like button, leave a comment, get in that chat. If you're listening over a podcast, give us a five-star review. We deserve it. Where else are you going to get this kind of fearless conversation? All right, we're going to go to the Shamoke show. Shamika Michelle.
0: I just want, I to I just to I just want. I just
1: All right, welcome back. Time for a little smoke and Shamoke Show. Uh, Shamika Michelle, uh, join us. Shamika, I think you just heard me and Delano dissecting uh, my latest monologue on Cal Rittenhouse. I, I want to throw you a little curveball—the same one I threw uh, Delano. Barack Obama. It, it's my contention that his presidency is the worst thing that's happened to black people in a long time. It's made us obsessed with politics. It's made us throw out all of the values that we were raised with in, ter- in pursuit of political power. And, and I, I think his presidency again, I'm not particularly blaming Barack Obama. I'm just blaming the impact of his presidency has actually been a bad thing for the mentality of black people.
4: Yeah, I don't know if it made us really obsessed with politics as much as it just kind of solidified the fact that we vote Democrat and we feel like, you know, no matter what, and because he was a Democrat, we it just solidified the fact that anybody that's on that side is our friend. Because I really think if it uh, made us obsess over politics, we would actually be paying attention to policies. And we would see that some of the things that Obama put in place were not beneficial to black people. He, to me, was the LGBTQ president. And so what I think it just did was solidify the fact that we vote Democrat as black people 90 uh, percent of the time, you know, and It just kind of made it solid. This is the side that you should vote for. This is the side that put Obama, the first Black president, in office. These are our friends. These are the ones we could trust. If we could trust the other side, they would have put a Black man in first, and they didn't. So this just means everything that I've always been told as far as the right is what's true. The right is against us. The left is for us. And this was a prime example as to why this is a fact. Look, they put the first black man in president. Hooray, hooray, hooray.
1: So everything you just said does not contradict my belief that his presidency turned out to be a bad thing for black people because it it baited us We were already there, I guess, and not really giving a lot of thought to who we vote for other than pulling the Democratic lever. But that cemented it. And now it's like it's no thought. The Democrats get to define who we are. If if we don't vote for them, we're not black. And so this isn't really an attack on Obama, although I could turn it into one. But it's, it's more of an attack on the ramifications of his presidency. Just. As it relates to politics, we turn our brains off and it's whatever the left tells us is the right thing to do. And I think that's been really damaging for us because we're looking at, because this Rittenhouse case is all political now, and we're looking at three white people get shot by a white person and somehow we think this is central to the survival, this case is central to the survival of black people. And again, I blame Obama's presidency for that.
4: Yeah, I mean, I understand completely why you say that. After Obama, we were supposed to vote for Hillary just because she was a Democrat. It didn't matter the disrespectful things that she had said about black men or black people. It didn't matter that she wanted to pander to black people by having hot sauce in her bag. She was a Democrat, and that's who we were supposed to vote for. Even Joe Biden said, if you have to ask yourself who you're going to vote for, me or Trump, then you ain't black. You know, they have kind of put us voting for Democrat in determining if we're black or white, you know, and even me as a black person, as black as I am with most of the time I'm wearing an afro because I did not vote for Joe Biden. I'm not black. And so I do understand exactly where you come from. Listen, I was excited like like most people when he won me i was married at the time me and my husband we got in our car we went blowing through our predominantly white neighborhood like Bye, you know he won we were so excited but <laughs> you know i don't think that he did what we thought he was going to do for black people and it's like okay well what what did this win really have to do with us why were we out at that time of night blowing through the neighborhood as if this was really going to affect us personally
1: Uh, Shamika, I argued today in my column and in my monologue that our interest in the Rittenhouse case is really just us wanting to agitate white conservatives that there's no win here for us. There's nothing that happens with this verdict uh, will impact black people one way or the other other than we'll get some little brief moment, oh, we frustrated white conservatives. They're pissed off today, hooray for us. Am I right, is that what's motivating us?
4: I have to say yes, Jason. It's almost like I see black people saying, wait, what, what are conservatives saying? He's guilty, it was self-defense. No, he needs to go to jail, he's a white supremacist. Wait, what, Uh, he killed, he shot, Uh, white men, it doesn't matter. He shot one that was a criminal who said He's one of us. Like, we just take on anything that is against white conservatives, again, because white conservatives are our enemies, white liberals are our friends. White conservatives tells us to, you know, pull pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and actually work hard and we can do whatever we want to do. White liberals, when they talk to us, they sing because they're our friends, right? Right. Okay. So this is just what we like to do. We we love uh, white liberals, whatever they say is right, and whatever we can do to make white conservatives mad, that's what we're going with. I actually saw somebody p- uh, put a tweet out that said, "Brace yourselves, black people, for the verdict," because. Uh, the justice system is like Clorox. It works well for whites, but not so much for colors. And I was thinking, what does this trial have to do with black people? And why are we hanging our future on whether or not Kyle Rittenhouse goes uh, free or he gets convicted? What are we doing? I'm going to sleep well tonight either way. I'm not going to miss a meal. I plan on going in the kitchen and making some mashed potatoes, green beans, and I'm going to eat well tonight, regardless of what happens to Kyle Rittenhouse. I'm going to be here uh, this week, next week on Fearless. This has absolutely nothing to do with Black people, and I don't understand why we're kind of nursing this as to whether or not this is a step forward for the Black Race, I I just don't really get the correlation at all.
1: I I almost put this in my column. Uh, I was going to analogize uh, Joseph Rosenbaum, the the pedophile that got killed. I was going to analogize him to Leonardo DiCaprio and Django Unchained, and that black people, Joy Reid and everybody, was Steven, and and they had Jason Rosenbaum. We were grasping, holding (laughs) Jason Rosenbaum by the head and dragging him to safety because, literally, this is a damn pedophile. The other guy's a domestic abuser. This is what white people call white trash. That's not me, but that's what they say and we are so concerned, we got white trash gathered up in our arms trying to drag it to safety. Oh my God, we gotta get justice for Joseph Rosenbaum. He he molested uh, five boys, anally raped them. We gotta save him. We look foolish. Can, can, can we not see how <laughs> foolish we look, caping up for Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber?
4: I don't think we see it at all because that's what we love to do. We love to put our titty in the mouth of a criminal. We got to make sure he feels okay. that we I don't understand why, just like we would say, um, I am George Floyd. I am Breonna Taylor. Well, guess what? I'm not. I'm not on fentanyl. I'm not going to have this kind of, you know, disagreement with the police. I'm not going to try to shoot at police like this is not who I am. And I don't understand why we always want to identify with the negative aspects of people. To me, it's just like when people would say Bill Clinton was the first black president again because he, you know, blew a saxophone, smoked weed and got his in the Oval Office. How is he the first Black president? We grab hold to things that are so negative and we, for some reason, this makes us feel better. I, I'm not uh, in sync with something that is negative. I'm not a criminal. I don't have to identify with someone because they're a criminal, because simply because they're Black. Like if we share the same ideas, then we have something in common. But I'm not going to... Um, big up you or celebrate you just because you're black or just because you're a criminal. And I'm supposed to understand how hard it is because we're all oppressed. I am not oppressed. And I just think we look crazy, but we do it all the time. So I'm not surprised. We've done it a lot in the last year. You know, people celebrating even Jacob Blake. I had... I was fine with what happened with Jacob Blake. When I read that he actually shoved his fingers in his baby's, um, his baby mother's vagina, trying to see if she had been with another man and some of the other things that he, she said he did to her, he got what he deserved. I saw somebody said, you know, why doesn't Jacob Blake hang out with the police? And the answer was because after seven shots, he can't stand up. Me? but it was funny to me. <laughs> what?
1: Okay, I'm gonna throw you one more softball, I think. Why don't we have a legitimate agenda? Why is our agenda to agitate white people as a way of advancement? Are we just, have we just run out of ideas? No one knows what to do? Is our leadership that bad or or, or are we that non-strategic? Why don't we have a legitimate strategy?
4: We can't come together and figure out what a legitimate strategy would be. To me, I think a good place to start is uh, men and women realizing that we should work together, that men are, for black women, a black man is not my enemy. Or a black man, a black woman is not your enemy. Can we start coming together and have families? Can we realize that uh, the, the matriarchy is not the way that it should go? Can we come together and say that men should lead, men should take their rightful place? I was sitting in a play this weekend that was awesomely written by teenagers. But what I noticed was that they celebrated women a lot. When it came to what we need to do in our community, it was look at these mothers, look at how these moms are doing this, that, or the other. No one said what needs to take place is that women need to take a step back and allow men to take a step forward. That's really what we need to do, but we can't even do that first on a, on a small scale, on a scale where it's gonna really affect our community and the amount of children that are in single parent homes. We can't even do that. And I've been thinking for a few years now, what is the solution beyond that? But we can't even get beyond that because we can't do that. We won't sit down and shut up and let men take their rightful place. And we won't support them and cheer them on We because we want to be in charge. We want to be the mouthpiece. We want to be the one that says this is what goes. This is the way it has to be. And we cheer foolishness. I saw Jamil Hill tweet that Lil Nas X was a genius. I've never seen her say that about a straight black man. All I've ever seen her do was to put straight black men down, to try to come against straight black men. But now Lil Nas X is a genius. Now Lil Nas X is man of the year. I think collectively, as black people, we need to say, hey, we've been in error for a long time. We've pushed a black man to the back of the line, and now look at what's happening. Look at what's going on. If we can do that, then I think we can come to Together and then go beyond that. But until we get this family straight, until we allow black men to lead and take the place like they should, we can't go beyond that. I heard someone say a couple of years ago that black people won't be uh, satisfied until White people are in chains. They're not going to be satisfied until you have a white slaves, because it really does seem like we don't have an end goal. What what are we trying to do? Why do we just feel like we've accomplished something when we um, get to to celebrate? foolishness in the face of white conservatives. That's not an accomplishment. You know, I didn't think it was an accomplishment to get Aunt Jemima off the pancake box. That's not a real accomplishment. What does that do for us? What will really help us as a a people is for men to take their rightful place and women to take our rightful place. That's, that's something we can come together. If we can do that, then we can move beyond. But until we do that, we're gonna continue to celebrate the the small things that don't even matter. People are gonna go out and clang their beers together if Kyle goes to jail and say, hey, we won something, and tomorrow a a little kid is gonna be born out of wedlock and no one's gonna care because we celebrate the wrong things. And until we do that as a, a people, I don't think we can really come up with a real goal because that needs to be our first agenda, being able to move back as women and let men move forward. Mm.
1: Uh, Samika, that may be some of your best work. Great job. Uh, go to youtubecom slash Jason Whitlock. Leave a comment. Leave some praise for Shamika Michelle. She just dropped some truth bombs right there. Uh, hit the subscribe and like button. Give us a five-star review. The Korean CoSell Steve Kim. <clears throat>
0: Pali Paksu Chucky that it's Michael Sodolo. Reason that I'm back to feed you raps but see that you are
1: cracks me up that the Korean co-sell has a rap intro. And he probably requested the rap intro. Uh, Steve Kim, uh, welcome back to the show. We've been talking a lot about Cal Rittenhouse. Uh, I would be racist if I didn't allow you to comment on the Cal Rittenhouse case. Uh, I don't want to pretend like, you know, as my Asian brother from another mother, you don't have an opinion on Cal Rittenhouse. I'm sure your whole life is wrapped around this verdict. Uh <laughs> If <laughs> if they come back not guilty, are you, are you going to need time off from work uh, for the next couple of days so you can, you know, get yourself together?
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this, about the whole Kyle Rittenhouse situation, is that I don't live too far here in Koreatown from the rooftop Koreans who are famous for that iconic shot of them protecting their businesses and property. And I just wonder if... It wasn't 1992, but 2020, would all of my uncles and my older brothers be under trial for basically protecting their own businesses? Now, again, it's a little different with Kyle Rittenhouse, but I listened to the show and I watched it yesterday, uh, Jason, and look, there is no such thing as racial justice. It's either justice or it's not, and it should be impartial, and in many ways, the evidence has to speak for itself. Facts matter. And what I think the most disturbing thing is, is that once again, the mainstream media is incredibly guilty of crafting or framing a narrative that simply is not rooted in fact. And that's my biggest takeaway from this. I don't know if the young man's going to be innocent or guilty. You can argue if he should have been there or not. But the fact that there were so many layers of this story that were, I believe, intentionally misreported to me is another indictment of the mainstream media.
1: All right, so we call you the Korean Cosell because you're our best talker on the top topic of sports. We don't call you Korean Cronkite. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to flip over uh, to your Los Angeles Rams last night. What an mm. embarrassment. Oh. Uh, who's, who's more to blame for that? s show that they had last night matt stafford who threw two interceptions sean mcveigh uh the wonder boy coach who's losing a little bit of a shine or is it the curse of odell beckham jr i think all three apply but jason
2: how about the front seven uh, you got all these big guys like aaron donald who i believe the last five six years is the best pure football player in the league you have von miller who probably is going to be the hall of fame jalen ramsey who who's going to be a perennial pro bowler for the next eight years. Maybe he's headed to the Hall of Fame. They got knocked off their feet. As they say, they got punched in the mouth. Then they got body punched. And right off the bat, Kyle Shanahan, when he's allowed to establish that running game, that's when all his creativity really comes into play and when Garoppolo can really function really comfortably within that pocket. They do a lot of eye candy, but they run it downhill. And from the very beginning, I said, one team's ready to play ball. The other isn't. But, Jason, we've all seen the movie Bull Durham. Great baseball movie. And when Matt Stafford threw that first interception, the name that came to mind was Nuke Lelouch. Million-dollar arm, 10-cent head. You can't make that throw. And that's where I think the biggest issue is. Matt Stafford for years has put up good numbers, but one thing he does not do, and it's the most underrated skill of every quarterback, whether they're a journeyman or a Hall of Famer, you got to manage the game and you got to protect the football. And he got off to such a bad start, Jason. And it really, to me, set an incredibly negative tone from the Rams. They were never really able to get out of that funk.
1: You dodged the question, so I'm going to answer it for you, Korean Cosell. You went with the front seven or the defensive front of, of the Rams. I think Odell Beckham Jr. is most to blame, and not because he did anything <laughs> wrong. Just his arrival made the Rams. <laughs> we got Odell. We got Von Miller. We got Aaron Donald. We got Jalen Ramsey. We got Matt Stafford's got the best arm in the league. And they think they thought they could just throw their helmet out there against the San Francisco 49ers and everything was going to be fine. And that's not the case. The Rams, because of Odell's arrival, have bought their own hype. and and took this game for granted. And again, first quarter comes, they get punched in the mouth and they never recover. It's, you know, you know the boxing analogy. Sometimes that can happen. You get hit so hard in the first or second round, you're just hanging on for the rest of the fight and it's hard to ever get back in the fight. And that's what I think happened to the Rams because of OBJ's arrival. Let me ask, do you think this is a one-off do you think the Rams will recover, get back on their feet, and be a serious Super Bowl contender the rest of the season? Well, Jay,
2: to clarify, this is a two-off. They got shoved around by the Tennessee Titans, so I'm actually concerned about the front mm. seven, how physical they are, and a lot of that is on coaching. And as it relates to OBJ, there's going to be an issue here. I, When they first signed him, remember, Robert Woods was still healthy, and I said to myself, okay, is he going to be able to play the role of the number three or four receiver? Here's the reality about OBJ. He's no longer elite, even though I still think he's got life in those legs. But Van Jefferson is a really good young receiver, and it's clear that Cooper Cup is a number one elite receiver. I still don't know how this is going to mesh. And now the Rams are heading into a bye week at 7-3, and three, Jason. Now, this is a test for OBJ to see how seriously is he taking this Ram experience. Is he going to go off to Cabo? Is he going to go off to vacation? Or is he going to stay inside that practice facility and go to Matt Stafford and say, we got to work on our mojo? He never did that with Baker Mayfield, and you saw the results. Look, I give the Rams credit. We talked about this. Or I wrote about it last week. When they got Von Miller to help bolster that front seven pass rush, I said, that's a great move. They are playing to win. Personally, I thought OBJ was better off in other places. And to me, Jason, The Rams move of Beckham, it seemed gratuitous.
1: I completely agree with you, and I'm going to tell you why I think it's gratuitous. To me, there's only been a couple of wide receivers, in my view, that when they show up, things change. And and Randy Moss is the biggest example of that. He was so big at 6'4", 6'5", and so fast, that he just, defenses could only do a couple of things. They had to roll coverage to Randy, and it made the game more predictable to the quarterback, and it enhances the rest of the offense. And that's why Randy Moss uh, took the Vikings to a 15-1 season. When he shows up in New England, he takes them to an undefeated regular season. When, when Randy Moss showed up, like, it mattered in the wins and loss columns because of his size. I I would put the only Terrell Owens kind of in that category. I can't go through the statistics in terms of when, but his size and speed and just what he did to coverages helped the rest of the team. These little undersized shifty receivers like Odell Beckham Jr., they don't make the rest of the, the uh, defense simplified. They, they don't have that same impact because they don't have the size. OBJ is a poor, and I'm, people are gonna be pissed off when I say it, he's a poor man's version of Antonio Brown. He's not as good as Antonio Brown. And I know he had nice numbers and he got to play with Eli Manning early and blah, blah. I don't care. He, he he's, he's doesn't impact wins and losses. The way that you think he does bring his energy and his need for attention like Antonio Brown to a team. But but I just think OBJ is overhyped. If it were not for the pregame catch routine, everybody could see what OBJ is. Puts up nice stats that have virtually nothing to do with the one loss record.
2: Yeah, and Jay, look, here's the issue. There was that iconic catch he made in his rookie season. I think it was on the NBC primetime game, that one-handed catch against Dallas. And in many ways, it kind of encapsulates what his career is. It's about the spectacular play, but more and more the last four or five years, he doesn't make the routine play. But I do think the Rams had an issue. We talked about this in private and I wrote about it, that the Rams want to capture the L.A. market, that they have to compete with the Dodgers and they have to compete with the Clippers and obviously the Lakers, the UCLA and USC. And when I grew up as a Ram fan, they always played second fiddle to the Raiders. And then the other thing was they were in Anaheim. So now Stan Kroenke comes back here and he says, I need to capture the market. And I think it's too much of a good thing. It reminds me of that episode of The Simpsons when Homer Simpson got into this dream world where he got to eat every donut he wanted and nearly killed himself. I just wonder if it's too much of a good thing.
1: Yeah, I've lived that experience the same as Homer Simpson. All right, uh, uh, (laughs) let's go uh, to the New England Patriots who now I think are they just a half game behind the Buffalo Bills. I know they're, they're 6 and 4. Are you buying the New England Patriots as perhaps a legitimate threat to win the AFC East and perhaps the entire AFC? They should be called the New
2: England problem because they are a problem for everybody. They are playing Billy ball. You know with Belichick they're going to be fundamentally and technically sound. They might even have a schematic advantage. But, Jay, they're actually good. If you look at their defense, Matthew Judon should be in the defensive player of the year discussion. Every game, he's disruptive. J.C. Jackson has become a top-flight cornerback. They're very sound. And if you watch that game this past weekend against Baker Mayfield, Baker was seeing ghosts like Sam Darnold. I mean, every single play – From the first drive on, it seemed like he was double-clutching because he understood, I'm going into the Bermuda Triangle here. I have no idea what's going on. And offensively, you look at the law firm of of Stevenson, Bolden, and Harris, the three-headed running game that they have, along with Hunter Henry, who's having a really nice year. I just look at this team as your quintessential Bill Belichick coach squad. They're smart, they're resourceful, they're physical, and they play unbelievable situational football. I think they're dangerous. And, Jay, you could say, oh, they're playing bad teams. Jay, you know what also says a lot when you beat bad teams? How badly you beat them. I believe the last four victories have come by a combined total of 100 points. So they're not squeaking by these teams. They're absolutely blowing them out. And now they go into Atlanta facing a veteran quarterback in Matt Ryan. Uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to see, can they handle prosperity? And now they're not sneaking up on anybody And they're going to play a team that's fighting to be relevant the rest of the year. If they win this game, I'm thinking to myself, they are absolutely real.
1: All right, make Uncle Jimmy happy. Uh, The Kansas City Chiefs also had a big rebound victory. They blew out the Raiders. I, I, I thought, no way. In, in Las Vegas, I thought the Chiefs were going to get their butt handed to them. I thought I was off the Chiefs, thought they were a bad team, thought this season was over. Mahomes throws five touchdown passes and now looks in, incredible again. Uh, you buying the Chiefs?
2: Jay, sometimes the greatest things we say on this show are the stuff That never gets on air. Remember Thursday before the the schedule got jumbled, me and you were going to wax eloquently about how Lamar Jackson's the future of the league. He's really the guy that's (laughs) the best quarterback, not Patrick Mahomes. Okay, guys, cut this, edit this part out because we never said it so it doesn't count. But wow, we'd be eating crow. And look, Sunday night they figured it out. And watch what I'm going to do here. It was patient Mahomes. In other words, he took the loose change and he collected the interest later. For them to succeed, Patrick Mahomes and that offense has to be stylishly methodical. Look, they have a track team out there. But the, what I enjoyed about Mahomes' game on Sunday was if it was an 8-yard hitch, he took it. If it was a back into the flat for a 7-yard gain, he took it. If it was a comeback route for 10 yards, he took it. He didn't try to do too much. And he played on script, on schedule, on time stayed ahead of the change, and and their first four drives, Jay, all took over 10 plays. So it does two things. It wears out the opposing defense, but it also keeps their defense off the field. And eventually, as the other teams get more aggressive and desperate, teams are coming out of that deep polo grounds center field cover two, and you can start taking some shots down deep. That's the key for Mahomes. Be patient, be quick in your reads, take the modest gain, stay ahead of the chains, and just run the ball enough where it actually matters. And I think they found their formula. Because, Jay, you look at the stats, at the end of the day, it didn't seem like a lot. But Mahomes still had a monster game statistically. And this is how great Mahomes is. That if you actually look at the statistics he's putting up this year in a down year outside the increased interceptions, he is still very much an incredible player football player, and he's still on his way to 5,000 yards passing and probably over 40 touchdowns. That's how good this kid is.
1: That's why we call him the Korean Cosell. Uh, he's as good as it gets when it comes to talking sports. Steve Kim, thank you so much. All right, go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock, Uncle Jimmy, and our approval rating for the Rams for Sean McVay. starts All right, welcome back. Uh, Uncle Jimmy, I just noticed uh, you have gaiters on with your military garb. You can take the man out of the firelight, but you can't take the firelight out of the
0: man. Is that what you're trying to tell me? If you're gonna talk the talk, you better be able to walk the walk. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and I'm trying to say, hey, it is what it is. How you gonna fire up the troops or lead the troops in, <laughs> in your Sunday shoes, man? But what you trying to say? I can't have a little style? I can't have a little flash? Huh? Come on, man. Stop that, man.
1: You look, you look good. You play good. Is that right? Uh, how did we do on the show today? You have
0: any thoughts? I, I enjoyed the show. Uh, once again, uh, Delano does what he does. You know. He, he, see, it kind of upset me because he he made the analogy. He said, you, "You you guys probably don't know about Gumby. There's Gumby right there. That's Gumby." Did he say, oh, he did say Gumby, that's he right. Said he, Gumby. Was, you know, he said Gumby, you know, he said we didn't know nothing about Gumby. Yeah. You know, um, I, I thought that was very, very apropos. One thing he said, and I, I don't know if you realize, he made the analogy of commercials, or, or excuse me, he made the analogy of men being men and driving the car. Yeah. Have you noticed how many commercials nowadays the men aren't driving the car?
1: All of them. They got Cadillac commercials for
0: black women. Yeah, I mean, I like, it, it, they stole it, our car.
1: Yeah, I'm just saying. I, I, Daddy rolled over in his grave when he saw that commercial. Trust me,
0: <laughs> that man drove a Cadillac his entire life, <laughs> and, and, and now the woman, and now the woman from The Voice of the Boondocks, <laughs> is the is the spokesperson for
1: Cadillac. He drove a two tone uh, Cadillac DeVille when I was a kid. It was one of the coldest things you ever saw. Exactly. Walk driving the streets of Indianapolis.
0: Blasphemy. Yeah. Complete blasphemy. Yes. Um, uh, uh, Shamika. Yes. She, she kind of, did she really say that we called Bill Clinton black because he played the saxophone? <laughs> she did. <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, did, uh. She did that with Arsenio Hall. I think that's what. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I just go say that, you know, then, uh, Steve, he made the analogy about Homer Simpson and the donuts, right? Yeah. You're not a South Park fan. So you haven't seen the South Park episode where Cartman soaked his whirlpool in gravy and he was just sitting up, (laughs) lathering himself in a whirlpool full of gravy. I've done that, too, but I had nothing to do with South Park. (laughs) You're blasphemous.
1: (laughs) I might do that tonight, actually.
0: (laughs) One more thing, man. You you talked about Barack Obama. And, you know, I, I I can try to, if I wanted to give Barack a pass, you know, and I, I can go after him or if I want to. But but you know, there's one thing I can't give him a pass on that 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 we joked and we talked about. Do you know that he sent a tweet and congratulated Little Nas X on his pregnancy?
1: Did he? I did not know that. Are you being serious? You got to bring. Show me that tomorrow if that's true. You got to. If show
0: you ain't me. careful, it's liable to be. We liable to have it right now. But yes, I'll show it to you tomorrow. He sent out a tweet that congratulated Little Nas X on his pregnancy. Mm. Now, now 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 we as black people, now I, I was gonna say, you know, my, my son, Ducey, 16 years old. Yeah. Young black man. When Donald Trump got into office, Ducey was terrified. My son was terrified because all he had knew as a child in America was Barack Obama. That's all he knew. And when this man got in here, he thought that the world was coming to an end, but now. He knows. <laughs> he knows it can get worse. Well, he, he found out the other day when he was in the bathroom and a man came in there just like a woman. I'm like, thank Barack. <laughs> all
1: right, let's get to our approval rating for Rams coach uh, Sean McVay. Uh, he has stocked his team with an all star cast of characters. Uh, they're seven and three. They've lost their last two games. They've been beat by Tennessee and and then just got destroyed uh, the other night. Why am I blanking out on who just beat up the Rams? The 49ers beat beat up the Rams uh, last night. Uh, So, anyway, job performance, you know, 7-3. I can't go all the way left on him. I got him at an 18.
0: I got him at a 20. 7-3, man, come
1: on. All right, that's a little hot. Come on now. Character, uh, I've got him at a 17.
0: Character? Have you looked at that cast of characters that that man that surrounded himself around? Yeah. I give him a 25. You can't get no more. <laughs> He's worse than the Kansas City Chiefs when we signed Bam Morris to Merrick Vanover. We had O.J. Simpson. Andre
1: Rizer. Yeah, you done left out Andre Rizer.
0: That's my dog. Andre, I,
1: I got no problem. Although at one point, Andre wanted to kill me. Uh, often, authenticity, uh, I'll give uh, Sean McVay an 18. From the
0: Mac conference, I don't We know. we have a phrase and we say that the fruit never falls far from the tree. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, remember, uh uh uh, uh Sean McVeigh is like a Coke 45 commercial. Don't let the smooth face fool you. <laughs> Sean McVay is a fool behind the scenes. Don't let him fool you. He couldn't hang out with them cast of characters if he wasn't. I give him a 25. <laughs>
1: He's authentic. All right. It factor, a little short white dude,
0: blonde hair. I give him a 12. He's a little short, good looking white dude. And he has that it factor that he just makes you just want to just walk up and just punch him in the neck for no reason. <laughs> You'd be like, man, I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong. Yeah, he has that it factor. <laughs> you have him at blazing
1: hot. No one in America would have He's 7-3 and three and just got embarrassed the last two games. He's 7-3. You, you got him blazing hot. I got him candlelit. You know where the Super
0: Bowl is this year? Nowhere. Los Angeles. Oh, that's right. Okay, then. He'll get it together.
1: That's a good excuse for me to go to LA. Perhaps I can get tomorrow to go to
0: the game with me if she ever speaks to me again. Yeah, but if she gets a chance, she's gonna seek her freedom. <laughs> i to send her one of these clips to let her know that I know that she's mad at me. Station, I uh, I think the court told you you can't make contact with her. <laughs> oh, all, right. <laughs> all right. We'll see you tomorrow. Sitting on the
4: corner, never been alone, for oh, freedom, Bless. we are living, get back, we are receiving all the when we all wanna be free. We want freedom. I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be, I just
0: want. I-